Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You ready? I was born ready. another i mean it's not an emergency episode anymore but let's call it this other strand of advisory opinions uh, that is happening alongside the trump indictment by the department of justice i'm sarah isger that's david french and david yesterday donald trump was arraigned uh we didn't really learn anything new except there was an order from the judge that he cannot talk to witnesses about the case, except through counsel. Um, many people asking whether and how that would ever be enforceable. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult to enforce orders like that. It, most of the time, you're relying on the honor system with orders like that. But the problem is, uh, those who disregard are running a risk because people who are reckless enough to disregard a court order are not always the most careful in how they disregard court orders. And so, um, yeah, I, it, it's the kind of thing where Donald Trump would be exactly the kind of person to disregard it and exactly the kind of person to disregard it in public. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but you're right. It is difficult to enforce. It's, it's really not meant to be enforced exactly. I would think of it more like a workaround to witness tampering. Witness tampering is very, very hard to prove. You'd have to go through every single element and you'd have to prove each one and the mental state and all of this stuff. Instead, by putting a court order like this in place, all you're gonna have to do is prove that he violated the court order instead of having to prove witness tampering. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not meant to be sort of strictly enforced, if, that's, if that makes sense. Um, but as you said, I mean, I also wonder how long this will stay in place. Um, his lawyers pushed back even during the arraignment, we're told. Um, I think they'll bring this up with Judge Cannon. And a district judge, of course, can override anything that the magistrate judge did very easily, um, in part because Donald Trump is going to be allowed to talk about this case and he's not going to know who's in the audience. <laughs> And there's a lot of witnesses. Right. <laughs> I mean, everyone who works for him is basically a witness. Uh, his lawyers, all of his staff, his personal aide who traveled with him to the courthouse yesterday, um, his co-defendant. Uh, it would apply to all of those people. So I, I won't be shocked if they revisit this 
when they're in front of Judge Cannon either. Yeah, that wouldn't shock me. But ordering people not to talk to witnesses is not an unusual thing. So this is this is kind of par for the course. Uh, but yeah, when you have this kind of defendant, it 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 might it's it's worth flagging, Sarah, because it might raise issues down the road. Yeah, fun times. All right, next up. I wonder whether we should talk about Judge Cannon. (laughs) Yesterday, he was arraigned in front of a magistrate judge. Magistrate judges are Article 1 judges, not Article 3 judges. Um, We're not going to go into a whole lot of detail on that, except to say that Article 1 judges like bankruptcy judges and magistrate judges, I think are, of course, totally unconstitutional. Uh, Make them Article 3 judges or they're not judges at all. But basically, they're considered... (laughs) Um, sort of helper judges. And in order to be constitutional, and again, I want to be clear that I personally don't think that they are, but in our current legal system, uh, in order to be constitutional, basically the district judge has to be able to revisit everything, redo everything. An Article Three judge is actually the one in charge. And this magistrate judge, again, for our purposes today, is like a helper judge. So that's who he was in front of yesterday for the arraignment. And that means the judge Cannon, though, is wholly in charge of anything that has been done by an Article I judge. Um, David, there have been lots of things written about how Judge Eileen Cannon must recuse herself because of the appearance of impartiality. And let's put this into a few buckets. One, appearance of impartiality. She was appointed by Donald Trump. I haven't heard a lot of serious people make this argument, but we'll you know, tear that down really quickly anyway. Um, so we'll, we'll do that briefly. Two, uh, she has to recuse herself because of her previous rulings that have been outside of the mainstream in favoring Donald Trump. And three, same thing, her previous rulings that have been outside the mainstream on issues similar to the ones that will be before her in this case because they involved... Uh, you know, the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. David, do you want to take each one of those? Do you think there's any, um, do you think there's any chance she'll recuse herself? I assume the answer to that's no, but do you give any weight to the, she should recuse herself? So the short answer to that is no, I do not give any weight to the should recuse by any, by any standard uh, at all uh, regard surrounding judicial recusals. Uh, look, the main argument against her really is, you know, the, the other buckets, not bucket one appointed by Trump. That is not, that is not the prime argument that I've seen. The appointed by Trump argument really isn't a credible argument. Uh, the argument really relates to the fact that she did, in fact, issue rulings in the uh, documents matter, in the initial search warrant matter, that were wildly out of the mainstream. And she was reversed, right? He, she was reversed by the Court of Appeals, reversed very quickly. But that is not grounds for judicial recusal in future related cases. Uh, District court judges make bad rulings all the time. They are reversed all the time. And it is then their responsibility to conduct their courtroom in accordance with the circuit court's directions. That's what a reverse and remand does. Now, I know this is not the exact same proceeding as the Mar-a-Lago search proceeding, But the fact that she was reversed by itself, even reversed for a really bad ruling by itself, 
is not grounds for recusal. The ground for recusal would be if she subjectively decided on her own that I'm just too, for whatever reason, too close to Donald Trump to be fair, that would be her own assessment that she would have to make. And I don't see that happening. Uh, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine her doing that. It's possible. But as far as formal legal grounds for recusal, the idea that you must recuse when you were reversed in a related proceeding, that's not, that is not formal legal grounds for recusal. I have been in many cases where district courts were reversed in the case and you go, guess what? You go right back down (laughs) to that same district judge who was just reversed and it's their responsibility to conduct themselves according to the Court of Appeals directions. And again, I know that this is not the exact same proceeding. She was reversed in a related proceeding, but that's, I'm sorry, that is just not grounds for recusal. No, that makes it even better. I mean, less recusally. It was not the same proceeding. Um, and I, I think that the other part of the recusal argument is that she, um, there is such a thing as if the appellate court found that not only were you wrong, but we cannot count on you, like you were so tied to this or you showed so much bias in that ruling that you can't be trusted with the case anymore. And the appellate court will remove the judge um, from hearing the case further. That just is is incredibly rare. Um, I can't think of the last time I saw that happen, although it does. But it's going to actually generally be biased against a criminal defendant. <laughs> it's not going to be biased for them. Um, uh, and it's going to be Again, something the judge has like really done through the course of litigation to show that they can't handle this case anymore. But it would have to be something outside of just being wrong on a ruling, like you said, David, because that happens all the time. Um, and even if your your legal reasoning is batty, that happens all the time. When judges get removed for that reason, it's because like, you know, things happen during trial. The things the judge has said have piled up so much. Parties have moved for recusal repeatedly, and the judge is now saying snide things about them, you know, on the record. It would be very, very unusual. We're not anywhere close to that. I also want to make the point, though, that I actually think if I'm Jack Smith and the prosecution, I'm not unhappy with pulling Judge Cannon. And I want to explain why. Because this is an unusual case. The Department of Justice did some hand-wringing before bringing it in the first place, I assure you. Um, they They want and need this to be over as quickly as possible and as seamlessly as possible. And so here's the two ways that this can go. Uh, A, it can be dragged out forever. That's not going to be entirely under the Department of Justice's control. It's going to be a lot under Donald Trump's control. We'll get to some of the motions and things that they may be bringing in a second. Um, But two, if you had a judge who really disliked Donald Trump, you would be giving Donald Trump potentially a lot of grounds for appeal. Donald Trump doesn't like that evidentiary ruling. Donald Trump doesn't like that jury instruction. Donald Trump yep. doesn't think that you excluded the right jurors, gave him enough uh, you know, challenges for cause. And so even if you got a conviction, you would be stuck in appellate hell <laughs> and there would be no finality and you would go up and down with new trials and all sorts of nonsense. Um, I don't think we actually have any clue how Judge Cannon's going to rule. For all we know, 
that last uh, Mar-a-Lago search warrant special master thing, she was just wrong and judges are wrong sometimes, or she feels chastised and wants another shot. Like there's all sorts of things where that's not who she is. But let's assume for a second, it's exactly who she is. That's good (laughs) for the Department of Justice in this case, because if every tie goes to Donald Trump and they still get a conviction, there will be no grounds for appeal. And then it's done. And I think more than anything else, this Department of Justice would like finality. And and that's something the judge can and potentially could give them. Yeah, I I think you raise a really good point. A shrewd prosecutor doesn't necessarily want like uh, what would be the the term a hanging judge, <laughs> you know the the one who's going to put the defense under his thumb, his or her thumb the whole trial. Uh, yeah, as you said, you just start piling up over time grounds for appeal. Every overruled objection is another thing, another you know bullet on the list. It's another bullet point on the list of reasons for appeal. Now, look, that's not to say that the judge should. Uh, put the prosecution under her thumb either. But, you know, this sort of notion that the district court judges legal rulings always flowing towards the prosecution being good for the prosecution, I think it's important that you raise that. That is not always the case, that um, a, a judge who is going to grant a defendant some leeway and some benefit of the doubt on some of the rulings, it's one way to grant greater finality to the underlying judgment if it is a guilty verdict. So I think that's a great point, Sarah. All right. Next up, let's talk about uh, some of these rulings. So for instance, you know, uh, the Trump team, actually, let's start Speedy Trial Act, how fast this could go. So under the Speedy Trial Act, a federal criminal defendant gets no less than 30 days to prepare for trial. You cannot start within 30 days of the arraignment. You can't rush them. But they are also guaranteed to start a trial within 70 days. Asterisk. So while a criminal defendant can't say, like, I don't want my speedy trial, like, sort of the public is also guaranteed that speedy trial. Nevertheless, the speedy trial 70 days is told, if you will, uh, for motions. So if the Trump team is happy to go to trial quickly, in theory, they could go to trial within 70 days. That's really soon, David. That would be trial before baby. I have more than 70 days left. Nature does not guarantee a speedy trial. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a trial in due time. Uh. And lots of legal commentators I saw yesterday were like, there's no way Donald Trump wants this to go on as long as possible. He's going to have endless motions. They want to drag this out in the hopes that he can become president and pardon himself or the hopes that a different GOP candidate can become president and pardon him. I get all those legal arguments. I don't think they're as like slam dunky as they think they are for me. Um, But I also want to make the political case, which is, first of all, uh, Donald Trump doesn't see the world that you do. <laughs> Hopefully that's right. clear to everyone. Well, that's a great, <laughs> hopefully obvious observation. <laughs> but two, politically, this is great for Donald Trump right now. I understand long term, I, I get all of that. 
But politically, Donald Trump is sucking up all the oxygen. That was like the OJ car chase yesterday. It was four hours of wall-to-wall coverage, network news broke in everywhere, cable news everywhere, um, and nothing happened. It was the empty podium of 2015. We don't know where Ron DeSantis was. We don't know what Tim Scott was saying. It is sucking all the oxygen from the other candidates. And Donald Trump is the front runner. And so if you can be the front runner and stop the race where it is, basically, you're in very good shape. If he can keep this in the news, go to trial, all of that. um, Yeah, I think politically, that's pretty good for him right now. And I think Donald Trump cares a lot about the politics and the appearance and the carnival aspect of it. So A, I wouldn't be so quick to say that he's going to drag this out for a year and a half. I could be wrong. It also is going to depend on who his legal team is, which we don't totally know yet. Um, I'm not saying they're not going to have some motions, which I do want to get to in a second. But just overall legal strategy, I don't think that it's a slam dunk. We want this to be a two-year thing. Interesting. I think it's more likely than not that he wants to drag this past the election now, but the, you know, there's going to be another, uh, there will be an issue as the campaign ramps up and what kind of motions will we see regarding, I have a presidential debate. I am supposed to be in Iowa. I am supposed to be in New Hampshire. You know, how much is there going to be this kind of effort to say, look, I can't have a trial Um, we can't have a trial. I'm in the middle of a primary election. Now, the interesting thing is what if he loses the primary election? Then I think you'd you'd probably see the trial. There'd be a lot less patience from the judge for delays. And you might see a trial between a primary and a general here if Trump loses the primary. But I think you're right, Sarah. As of this moment, this is working for him politically, or at least seems to. And and I have sort of a couple of measures on this. One is obvious, it's the polling. Uh, I have seen some polling indicating that his lead might be, you know, I've, I've seen a poll or two saying his lead might be declining a little bit. I've seen other polls saying other things. But I, I sort of have a couple of barometers. The obvious one is the polling. The other one is, as we learned in the Fox Dominion case, right-wing media is very attuned to their audience. And so if you are seeing sort of in right-wing media robust defenses of Trump, uh, even from people who are saying, I don't like his conduct, but this is outrageous, then that's, to me, another indicator that as of now, at least the base, at least the core, the people who are watching Newsmax or Fox or, you know, OEN or whatever, or listening to Mark Levin on the radio, uh, that they are still with him and they're angrier about the indictment than they are angry at Trump. And so I'm, I think a leading edge indicator of slippage for Trump might be slippage in sort of this full-throated defense we're seeing, not, only, not exclusive, it, it's, it's not the only message in, in right-wing media right now, but it's definitely the dominant message. And and again, remember, this is a media that is very attuned to its audience and its audience is disproportionately Republican primary voters. So I'm with you that at for now, for now, this is working for him. All right. So let's talk about some of those motions. You mentioned, uh, hey, I'm in Iowa motion. <laughs> yeah. I've heard some discussion on various gag orders that the prosecution could ask for. You know, we don't want Donald Trump personally disparaging the prosecutor, the special counsel, and his team publicly. 
Good luck with that. David, you and I have talked about this before in other contexts around Donald Trump specifically, but any criminal defendant. But this criminal defendant is also a candidate. And the core of the First Amendment is going to protect, above all else, political speech. So first of all, any criminal defendant is allowed to criticize the prosecutor, to question their motives. I understand that the stakes here are higher. I really do. Um, And this is not to defend what Donald Trump has or will say about Jack Smith or anyone who works at the Department of Justice or the cost, literally and metaphorically and figuratively, to Jack Smith and anyone who works at the Department of Justice who's caught in those crosshairs. I, I hope and think that I speak from some experience on this, but you simply are not going to have a gag order on a criminal defendant to be able to criticize, even if that criminal defendant has a bigger megaphone than every other criminal defendant. That's not, quote unquote, his fault. So don't hold your breath for the gag order. David, you disagree? Yep. I 100% agree. it It would be really hard for me to see Trump, uh, if a gag order is issued and Trump challenges a gag order, it would be hard for me to see Trump losing that challenge, uh, you know, on appeal, for example, if you, if you, if you sought an appeal from the judge's gag order, uh, challenging it directly, it'd be hard for me to see him losing that. He is a presidential candidate. This is arguably the number one political topic in the whole United States of America. It's historic, yeah, gag order isn't going to work. And even if you did, by the way, put a gag order on Trump, like that's not going to help nearly as much as you think because it's not going to be a gag no. order on everyone else talking about it. So there's also just an efficacy problem with any gag order. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, okay. I don't want to spend a lot of time on potential motions like revisiting attorney-client privilege things that are in the indictment, suppression of evidence, jury selection, because frankly, I think we're going to get to those. So they exist out there. (laughs) I think that the Trump team, while they may want a speedy trial, speedier than other people think, in my view, they're still going to try to, I believe, exclude some of this evidence. Number one is going to be attorney statements, I think. But let's get to that when we get to that. David, there's one last big, big topic, and that's There's 37 charges. One through 31 is the willful retention of national defense information. This is a statutory crime stemming from the Espionage Act. Whee! The Espionage Act has a (laughs) um, storied history. There's a lot of people out there 
saying that a president can't violate the Espionage Act. Um, and tied into that, there's like a, a ball of tangled yarn arguments on 1 through 31. There's the Espionage Act and the president can't violate the Espionage Act. There's the Presidential Records Act saying that the president can take whatever documents he wants and thumb his nose at everyone else. So, na 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 na. And then in that tangled yarn is this 2012 case from Amy Berman Jackson, a DC district judge, which is being loving, which is being lovingly called the Clinton sock drawer case. And I'll just <laughs> give briefly the facts here. Bill Clinton, uh, when he was president, was recording with an author potential memoir type day in the life of Bill Clinton stuff. And in the course of that, um, Judicial Watch at least believed that he might have talked about more official things and that he may have uh, even talked about things that could be classified. And so they sued to have the National Archives go get those tapes from Bill Clinton. Now, there was a whole question of like, where are these tapes? Do these tapes still exist? Who knows? Uh, but the important outcome of the case, if you will, um, is that Judge Jackson, and again, Judge Jackson, not Justice Jackson, she <laughs> threw out the case, so ruled against Judicial Watch and for the National Archives slash Bill Clinton, who was not a party to this case, actually. And that becomes pretty relevant that Bill Clinton was not a party to this case. And she said that the Presidential Records Act contains no provision obligating or even permitting the archivist to assume control over records that the president categorized and filed separately as personal records. So basically, when you're president and you're packing up your boxes, the Presidential Records Act doesn't give anyone else the authority to help you pack the boxes or to make, you know, to go over your shoulder. Right. You get to put, you know, this trinket in one box and say, ah, look, it's my trinket. It's personal. And this other thing in the other box and say it's official. And basically, we trust the president to do that. Okay, so that is all the ball of yarn tied up in the willful retention of documents, defenses that I've seen out there. Um, however, I want to note, David, charges 32 through 37, the lying, false statements, obstruction. Yes. I haven't heard any defenses of that. So, and I'm not trying to, to straw man this. Like, I literally haven't heard any. So while we're going to talk about the legal weaknesses and defenses on the willful retention stuff, even if all of those got knocked out, I just want to make the point <laughs> that you would still be left with charges 32 through 37, because once again, Donald Trump is his own worst enemy. And that even if he hasn't done anything wrong, the man just loves a good obstruction charge. Look no further than the second part of the Mueller report. I talk a lot about the first part and that everyone gets the first part wrong or ignores the first part where Mueller said there was not evidence to bring charges against Donald Trump or his campaign related to interference in the 2016 election. Everyone just disagrees with me on that. I don't understand why, like it's actually written there. But part two of the Mueller report is also right there. And it's like, yeah, this is very obstruction-y. We're not gonna do anything about that, I don't think. I'm going to leave that up to Congress because, frankly, they would have to impeach him for us to do anything about it anyway for a sitting president. But, like, not great, Bob. 
This is like right. that, except that they <laughs> did bring the charges because he's not the current president yeah. and no defenses that I've heard, except, well, if he didn't break the law, how could he obstruct breaking the law? To which my answer is, yep, that's how obstruction works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I think the technical term for the defenses I've seen on the um, Presidential Records Act surrounding the Presidential Records Act is the uh, Finding Nemo is Finding Nemo Seagull defense. Mine. Mine, 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 mine. Uh, and that's essentially what the argument is, that he said on each box, mine, 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 mine. And then he takes them and they are his. And that's sort of the essence of the defense. And the problem you have. I think there's some argument for it. I don't think it's, I don't think it's crazy. It may lose. Right. But, but there's some real stuff here. It's non-crazy, but it has weaknesses. Yes. And. One of the weaknesses is this is an Espionage Act case about information pertaining to the national defense. And, and this is where a lot of people get like really upset at the Espionage Act because that's broad language, you know, the information pertaining to the national defense. And so one of the things that has a lot of people have said about, well, he declassified. Well, if he declassified, but that's not what the Espionage Act says. It's not classified information pertaining to the national defense. It's information pertaining to the national defense, being removed from its proper place of custody. And then that's where it gets really squirrely because he would say, well, no, then this is the proper place of custody if it's mine. If it's mine, the proper place of custody is wherever I want to put it in my house. And so, you know, it is a non-frivolous argument, but it is the Espionage Act has language that's broad enough to where you know, and again, this is one of the critiques people mount against the Espionage Act. So I put it in the category of non-frivolous defense that counts one for 31, one that's going to be worked out in court. But as you said, I have not seen any defenses mounted yet for the remaining counts. And I think part of the argument on that would be, oh, well, they're not real charges. They're just, quote, process crimes. Well, guess what? guess what? There are a lot of people who go to prison for these, quote, process crimes. And and just in the sneering you see about process crimes, say, on Twitter, is not, doesn't work in court. You don't get to say, look, I know he lied or caused his employees, subordinates to lie um, in response to a grand jury subpoena, but that's just a process crime, Judge. <laughs> that's that's not how that goes. It's a legal defense, sort of as a political defense that Donald Trump isn't as bad a guy as you might think he is as a sort of public political defense. Okay. But as a, as a legal defense, the sneering about, you know, uh, at the type of crime he's charged with is, is really immaterial. It just doesn't matter at all. And if you're looking at the substance, I've not yet seen what the Trump defense is going to be to the counts beyond the Espionage, Espionage Act. So I want to steel man that ball of yarn and one through 31 a little bit, which is this. He got to choose which papers to put in the boxes while he is president. And remember, he's acting as the executive. And one of the pushbacks I've heard to that is, well, yes, but there's, um, you know, there's another statute that basically says that agency documents are different. And for presidential records purposes, the agency owns these documents, not the president. Well, the agencies are under the executive branch. And if you want to get into some real legal weeds here, I actually am willing to buy into or at least very much hear out arguments that like, no, the agency documents may belong to the agency over 
let's say, the Secretary of State. But when you're talking about the president that oversees the agencies, while he is acting as president, uh, he can override anything the agency says, just like he could declassify stuff. Um, And so then he takes it to Mar-a-Lago. They are at that point his personal papers under the Presidential Records Act. And so how can he, you know, the National Archivist then has no claim over them, according to this 2012 opinion. I'm willing to follow you that far, actually. Here's your problem. He is now no longer president. Now, the current president says, I want them back. The current president is saying that through the FBI and a subpoena. You, as the former president, have every ability to go to court to challenge that subpoena and say, nope. And use the mind defense. Use the Siegel defense. Mine, mine, mine. (laughs) What you don't get to do as the former president is not the Siegel defense. I don't, the crab defense, hide, hide, hide. (laughs) 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 And that's where that defense falls apart a little bit, which is the willful retention he wasn't charged with is putting them in the boxes as president, flying them to Mar-a-Lago as former president. We're talking about 11.59 a.m. versus 12.01 a.m. All of that's fine. The willful retention charges come only after the FBI subpoena. Yeah. yeah, And that's where this ball of yarn loses me a little because even if they're his, even if uh, the Presidential Records Act allowed, them, allowed him to classify them as personal um, and the agency documents and the national defense information stuff doesn't matter because the Presidential Records Act gives that president the authority. And even if it didn't, maybe there's inherent authority in being president. I'll buy all of that. But there's a different president now. <laughs> And so all of that authority is then in someone else. And that had to be litigated. One last note on this, David, that I think is worth people understanding. This will not be a question for the jury. Right. This is a legal question. So Judge Cannon is going to decide all of these legal questions, frankly, that you and I are going to talk about on this podcast. The jury is then going to be given jury instructions telling them what the law is. Something to the effect of, if you find that the president believed these to be his documents, you must acquit him. If you find that the president did not believe these to be his document, you know, something to that effect, as in they're not going to be given like, uh, well, if they were his documents based on this 1917 statute, like, nope, nope. The, the jury instructions will be very simple in that sense. Juries decide matters of fact, credibility, um, things juries can look at why we want 12 reasonable people, the reasonable standard really holding this one up here, (laughs) uh, is that end of the funnel, if you will, where a judge is no better at discerning truth than 12 citizens. But in terms of whether the 1917 Espionage Act is overridden by the unitary executive theory and constitutional separation of powers, yeah, that's going to be Judge Cannon's call. Right. And that is going to be a very interesting argument. And Judge Cannon is not going to be the last word on that. (laughs) Um, This is something that's going to be litigated up the chain in all likelihood. So uh, this is going to be, in my view, barring unusual evidentiary issues, this is going to be the central, most interesting legal question in the case. But again, as you said just now, as you said in your newsletter, which we should put in show notes, which was great, um, this. No one has yet 
brought forward a defense that touches the remainder of the charges. Doesn't mean there's no defense. It's just that I haven't seen the defense yet. And we, we, we don't have any insight yet as to the defense. And let's also be clear on what is not a defense. Um, I didn't break the law. So how could I lie about this? Or how could I obstruct if I didn't break the law? Because what you'll see in so many of these 1001 cases is you weren't sure whether you were breaking the law. So you lie about it. <laughs> you don't you don't have to know yes. you broke the law to yep. lie. And you don't have to be 100% sure you didn't break the law to lie. It's those people who are like, Ooh, this doesn't look good for me. So I'm going to lie about it. Because I'm not quite sure where it goes if I tell the truth. Yep. You know, that's that's like your Martha, St- Martha Stewart type case. There's a lot of shady stuff, like sort of stuff around the line. And most people don't know. They may think they broke the law. They may think it's debatable. They might think they could lose. And so the, the lie is designed to remove the threat or remove, you know, re- remove the prosecution from hanging over their heads. But the lie actually ends up triggering the prosecution more than the underlying uh, allegations. And yeah, this is something that it just happens all the time. And one thing, one thing, you know, I'll note is, look, I have seen a lot of argument about process crimes during the Trump, uh, during the Mueller investigation, sort of dismissing a lot of the Mueller charges that were brought uh, related to lying and in the process type arguments, just process crimes. I did not see that when Durham was trying process crimes. People were like, yeah, go get them, you know, on the on the right. We're like, go get them, go get them. A lot of the process crime arguments is, it, are often driven or the denigration of process crimes is often driven by a lot of underlying sympathy for the for the defendant that's not to say that there isn't a serious and credible argument to be made about process crimes. And there are legal commentators I've read who make those serious arguments about how the FBI kind of abuses 1001 to get, its peop- to get the people in its crosshairs. That happens. That also happens. Uh, so there are defenses to 1001 cases, obviously, the challenge that Donald Trump has is the defenses to his conduct there are not yet obvious. <laughs> and not to say they won't emerge, but as of right now, they're not yet obvious. I think that'll wrap up our podcast on this. David, I did want to tell you some exciting news. You may remember my tattoo that I'm working on. <laughs> you don't have it yet, Sarah? It's just to like a couple of hours. Just a couple of hours. So last night, we had an amazing event for our dispatch members in Houston, uh, my hometown. It was about half a mile from where my parents live. The brisket even got to come for some of the event. It was incredible. I had the very, very best time. It's so nice to come home. And at the end of the event, uh, Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes were there with me. And Jonah presented me with an envelope, David. And inside that envelope, were temporary tattoos that say other cases presenting different allegations and different records may lead to different conclusions. (laughs) (laughs) You are kidding. That is phenomenal. I'm not kidding. (laughs) I love that so much. And I just want to mention that I do have multiples and I know we have Supreme Court clerks who listen to this podcast. And if you could pass on a message to Justice Jackson and let her know that if she wants twinsy tattoos, 
I am so here for that, <laughs> that I will give her one of my temporary <laughs> tattoos. They fit on the, you know, average forearm of a female. Um, I think it would look awesome. And I just, you know, I think Justice Jackson's pretty great in any number of respects, but that line forever will be amazing to me. Um, and so I just, I want to pay her respect and offer her said temporary tattoo. I will absolutely be sporting mine all the time now. I love it. Well, we have some live podcasts coming up, Sarah. Ooh. And the people will be disappointed if they're meeting you in person and you do not have your tattoo. <laughs> David, it's so cool. I can't even tell you. I can't believe Jonah did this. <laughs> That's so fantastic. That is one of my favorite things. That is so fantastic. Um, also, I was asked, so you're speaking at an event in Houston coming up. Um, and I was asked about like, what are special treats that David likes that people don't know about? And I, for some reason, like, you know, you're like asked this in a, like a big group of people in a long line and so your head goes to whatever the first thing you think of is. And I was thinking about our road oh, no. trip up to, were we going to New Haven? I think, yeah, we flew into New York and we were driving yeah, yeah. to New Haven together and we stopped at McDonald's, which I was super pumped about, got my little dollar cheeseburger, awesome time. And you went over and got <laughs> the orange Fanta crush or whatever disgusting beverage. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, David oh, really likes glorious. David really likes orange crush soda. <laughs> <laughs> true. True facts. Okay. It's fantastic. Good, because that's literally you're gonna now go into every hotel room you ever stay at for an event and it's gonna be filled with orange soda because that one time you drank it in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's the best thing. <laughs> amazing. Oh hey David, before we go, one other thing. Um, <laughs> there's a third person in this podcast every single time without fail. We can't do this podcast without him. His name is producer Adam. Yes. And we never give him any credit. We don't even acknowledge his existence. <laughs> um, and he suffers we, in silence. He truly does. Yeah. He's muted right now. He like can't <laughs> even weigh in um, if he wanted to. And let's just be clear, right? Like we end up recording from places that don't have internet. There's like seven different recordings he has to piece together, not to mention all of our mistakes or, hey, I didn't mean to say that. Like, can you take it out? All of that stuff Adam does. And he does it without complaint. Um, however, I did think there were limits. And it turns out there aren't. <laughs> because Adam, last week during our emergency podcast, as I was you know, grumbling and complaining about how I was in paradise and it was my vacation. Why did I have to do this emergency podcast? Adam failed to tell us that he was the best man in a wedding. Not that weekend, not that day, that hour. So while again, <laughs> I was complaining about being on vacation, Adam failed to tell us that he was going to be late to being the best man at his best friend's wedding, Ken Goshen and now Daniela Goshen. We're so sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're really, really sorry for any stress we caused you. But then we had this really interesting discussion with Adam as to whether, in fact, we did him a favor because guys don't necessarily always love all of the wedding festivities. Uh, but Adam would never say that out loud about his best friend's wedding. But it just raised an interesting question about 
how much do guys, groomsmen, best men love all the pageantry surrounding various weddings. But we're really sorry for the stress. Yeah. David, I want to be clear. No, maids of honor aren't like loving their life. The point is you are there to serve. You need to be there. You can't show up and walk out 30 seconds before the bride walks down the aisle and be like, ha ha, I did my job. No, no. There's all sorts of responsibilities that you have in planning and execution. You're right. And so this idea that like, well, he made it in time for the vows, like that's not acceptable. <laughs> so we're really sorry, Ken and Daniela. True. And it we didn't know. Yes, we're very sorry. We did not know we were causing you stress. We did not know we were causing Adam stress. And we apologize. This is a family podcast. We support families here. <laughs> and the creation of True. families and new families and your new family we want to support. So next time we'll make sure Adam is there for the bris. <laughs> 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 Our bad. Our bad. I have, I have one question. So, on advisory opinions, about a month ago, you went crazy about some line from Katanji Brown Jackson. <laughs> yeah. What was that? Different, yeah, my tattoo. Uh, <laughs> different cases have different facts, could have different results. <laughs> so, because I care so much. I, after I heard that, I actually had that temporary tattoo made for you. <laughs> it's a mirror image, because it has to go on your body. Um, I told Steve about this at lunch today, and he was like, so dude, what you gotta do is you gotta make it your tramp stamp. And be like, so weird, it's my tattoo too. <laughs> But we want to keep you people as subscribers. <laughs> and no one wants to see that. So, yeah, so anyway, this is for you. Uh, there's some trial ones. You can put it where, probably on your arm. Um, oh my God, yeah. So there you go. That's a really good light. Oh my God, guys. Nice. <laughs> it fits. It definitely fits. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.